and take your Bibles, and we're going to turn to the passage that we read together this morning, a lengthy passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll be looking at all 31 verses today. So we're taking kind of a bird's eye view of this uh, particular chapter in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I shared with you last Sunday morning that we need to keep in mind that from chapter 11 to chapter 14 uh, of this letter, the Apostle Paul is dealing with uh, matters in the church that pertain to our worship. This is a large block of teaching, chapter 11 through chapter 14. It is what Paul calls the traditions that I passed on to you. That is, this is right from the Apostle himself, and it's important instruction for the church, not just to the Corinthian church to whom it was written 2,000 years ago, but for the whole church throughout the age when Christ will have his church on this earth until he returns for it in the future. So here we have a block of teaching, and just as, just as, there, were, um, as there were negative influences in the city of Corinth, in the Corinthian culture that, that infiltrated the church, it impacted the church of God in Corinth, affecting how the Corinthians looked upon leadership in the church, infected the, the attitude that, the mindset, the worldview that the Corinthians had about sexuality and spirituality. Um, so there were also these negative influences that were impacting their worship. And uh, if we took the time this morning to go from chapter 12 to 14, just simply to read it, and I encourage you to do that in the coming days, you would see immediately that worship in Corinth, the Corinthians in some way, were making it more about their own personal individualistic expressions in worship than they were about glorifying God and about building each other up in the faith. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers. It's clear the Apostle Paul is responding now to questions that the Corinthians had. That comes out earlier in the letter, and here again he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. In other words, he's responding to questions that the Corinthians asked. Now, we don't know specifically what those questions were, but they had sent a letter to the Apostle Paul asking a number of things. So he's now saying, okay, I've come to that point now where I'm going I'm to talk to you about spiritual gifts. But interestingly, even though it's translated here in our English translations as spiritual gifts, in actuality, he doesn't use the word gifts right in verse 1. A better way of translating this would be now concerning spirituals. So he's not talking about gifts. And so it's hard to understand. Is, is Paul saying here, is he talking about spiritual things, spiritual people, or spiritual gifts? In actuality, he's talking about all three. And so he uses this broader word, pneumaticon, not charismata, which is gifts. He uses the word pneumaticon, which is spirituals. Now concerning spirituals, he writes here. So 
The reason why gifts is inserted here into our English Bibles is because the whole passage is about the gifts. And so the translators are hoping to give some clarity to us. But keep in mind, he's just talking about spirituals, spiritual things. In other words, Paul is saying, I want to talk to you now. I want to answer your questions now about spiritual matters. What I want to tell you right now is more is, is not so much the gifts. It's, it's more than the gifts of the Spirit. It's more about the people who use the gifts of the Spirit. It's more about the character and the nature of the people who use the gifts of the Spirit. Now, again, we don't know exactly what question they were asking, but, but I think it's safe to deduce that their question would have gone something like this. Paul is it really true that, that spiritual manifestations in the church, the gifts of the Spirit, that they constitute unfailing evidence of spiritual people? In other words, Paul, is it true that, that when, and I'm going now to chapter 14, where Paul deals with two specific gifts, speaking in tongues and prophesying. Is it true, Paul, that when someone stands up and they, they, they speak in tongues or they prophesy in the church, is it, is it true that when that happens, that's real evidence of a real spiritual person who's doing the speaking? Look at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. So he goes back to their past. He goes back to their idolatrous past. He goes back to their pagan past. He's saying, you remember when you were pagans and you, you worshiped false gods, you were bowing down before idols, and you remember in that context, there were certain things that happened. Because sometimes in the temples of Artemis and Apollos and Aphrodite, there would be prophetesses or prophets who would stand up and they would speak and there would be this ecstatic utterance that would go on and everyone would go, oh, wow. It's the gods speaking. You know when you were pagan, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray. He's saying that that's what was a part of your past, and you're sort of asking me now, is it, is it true that when that happens in a Christian worship setting, that that's the sign of true spirituality? So when someone speaks in tongues or they prophesy, does that, does that show that they are like super spiritual people? Is this a sign that they have reached a, a deeper or a more higher level of, of spiritual understanding and living than others have? Verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Ignorant. In the past, you were ignorant pagans and you worshiped idols because of your ignorance, he's saying. I, I, don't, I don't want you to continue in that state as it, as it pertains to true Christian spirituality. I don't want you to be ignorant about who or what is spiritual using the criterion of your past pagan 
ignorance. Because in the past, you based, your, you based spirituality, or judged it at least, by what you could see, by certain kinds of ecstatic manifestations that would have happened in your meetings. Paul's saying, I want to share with you now what true spirituality is all about. And so beginning at verse 3, he answers their questions, and in essence, he removes from their from them the ignorance that characterized their, their lives. And he begins in verse 3 with what I'm calling the overarching commitment of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting verse. Because Jesus is Lord is our, is our creed. It's our statement of belief. It's, it's even more than that. It's not only we believe that Jesus is Lord, but when we say it, we, we are acknowledging that we are surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ because he is the Lord. He's the one who calls the shots in our lives. In essence, what Paul is saying is, if if you want to understand what the Holy Spirit does in the church, if you want to understand the working of the Spirit in worship, everything that happens in worship, when the Holy Spirit is speaking, when the Holy Spirit is moving, it's all about exalting Jesus. It's putting Jesus, as it were, in his proper place as Lord. To exalt the Lord Jesus Christ is the overarching commitment of the Holy Spirit. Whenever he is speaking, whenever he is moving in our midst, there will be a lifting up and exalting of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit shines, as it were, his light upon Jesus so that we can see his person and understand his work. And whenever that happens in worship, It will always lead us to a deeper surrender of our lives to Jesus Christ as Lord. But not only that, look at what he says in verse 7. Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So, So when the Holy Spirit comes, when he's working in our lives, when he's speaking in a worship setting or in a context of a small group or, or a group of believers who are talking to each other and seeking to encourage each other, they're going to exalt Jesus in their speech because that's what the Holy Spirit does. But everything they say, because the Holy Spirit is working, is also going to build them up in their faith. There is going to be an edifying of the church, an edifying of the body of Christ. Now, you don't need to turn to chapter 14, verse 26, but let me just quote it to you because at the end of chapter 14, he kind of summarizes the whole thing and he says, all of these things, he says, are for the strengthening of the church. So keep this in mind. Whenever the Holy Spirit is at work in a church, Christ is being exalted as Lord And the body of Christ is being built up in the faith. Now, let's look at verses 4 through 6, where Paul now begins to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, there are different kinds of gifts. This phrase, different kinds, or in some translations it will say varieties, different kinds, 
is the key phrase here. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. There are various ways, Paul is saying, in which the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit's gifts are made manifest within a Christian church. The three words he uses here are gifts, service, and working. We're talking now about the unique expressions of service. The gifts of the Holy Spirit given to the church so that there will be unique expressions of service. Now this first word, different kinds of gifts, this is talking about a considerable range of gifts. The Greek word is charismata, from which we get charismatic or gifted. Now, he actually gives us, he names some of these charismata, some of these gifts, beginning at verse eight. He talks about the message of wisdom or the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge. Verse nine, faith, gifts, gifts of healing. Verse 10, miraculous powers. And there are nine gifts that he lists here. And then if you go over to verse, um, verses uh, 28 to 30, he adds a few more. And in total, there are 13 different gifts of the Holy Spirit that he mentions here. But it makes you wonder then, because we know in Romans chapter 12, Paul actually writes and lists a whole pile more gifts. And Ephesians chapter four, he mentions other gifts. And so nowhere in the New Testament do we have a complete list and a one-shot time. They're spread throughout the New Testament writings, which makes us wonder, are there actually more gifts? And Paul's just giving us samples or examples of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church. The next word is service, found in verse five. This is, a, this is a general term. There are different kinds of service, meaning there's all kinds of work, all kinds of varying ways in which God's people can serve. And in verse five, there are also different kinds of working, and the word there is energies, which hints at the power of the Holy Spirit to produce all of this. In different ways, God's power is, is made manifest, it's applied. And these three words are connected then to all of the various gifts of the Spirit. And I think that's an important thing because you know, when you look at the, li the list, when, when you think of, for example, healing or miracles, when you, when you, when you, when you think of, of distinguishing of spirits, these all sound kind of spectacular, sensational supernatural. But when you get to the end of the list where Paul talks about helps and administration, it seems kind of mundane and natural, practical. But whether, whether the gift seems to be supernatural in nature or practical in nature, the bottom line is this is all the working of the same Lord, the same Spirit, the same God. Verse 11, all these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each man just as he determines. God is sovereign in this. God, the Spirit, wants 
each of us to be then unique expressions of service to God. And so he gives different gifts, their enablings, their empowerings, their abilities that come from him that make our particular contribution in service as being unique. And the point is, is that none of these are identical with each other. They're all different kinds, he says. Now this tells us something about us, but it also tells us something about God. And so I want you to think with me now about this truth, that the gifts showcase the Trinity. Look again at verses four through six. Different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. Verse five, different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Verse six, different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. These verses are Trinitarian in nature. It's about the Spirit, the Lord, God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father. Now, just one thing about studying the Bible and reading the Bible, just a little hint. Whenever you come across verses in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned very close to each other, Whenever the Trinity is mentioned, don't pass over those verses quickly. Stop for a moment and think. The Trinity is mentioned here. Because there's something then about God, the Holy Trinity, that we can learn, that we need to consider, and we need to meditate upon. Now, he talks about different kinds of gifts, same spirit, different kinds of working, same Lord, different kinds of of power, same God. What is he saying? He's saying that even though there are all these varieties that God gives, so to speak, no person of the Trinity ever acts independently. That's the truth. No person of the Trinity acts independently of each other. The Father doesn't do things that the the Son doesn't know anything about. And the Son doesn't do anything that the Spirit doesn't know anything about. They're always working in harmony with each other, never independent from each other. Now, we know that to be a truth in terms of our salvation. Because it is the Father who sends the Son the Son who dies on the cross, and the Spirit who comes into our lives when we believe in Jesus, and He applies salvation purchased by the Son and desired for us by the Father, He applies it to our hearts. So they each have a distinct work, but they're always working, not independently of each other. They're working in harmony. They're working in unison. Their work is communal with each other. Now, this is important because the gifts of the Spirit given to us don't work independently of God. We need to keep that in mind. The gifts of the Spirit is not an opportunity for you and I to to sort of engage in a free-for-all. No, it's important that this reminder is here that even though there is a variety in the gifts, there is a purpose in the gifts. 
Therefore, we are not to march to our own drummer, so to speak, or be all caught up about the individualistic expression of our particular gifts, because the gifts of the Spirit are communal in nature. They produce unity within the church because they showcase the unity of the Trinity. And so that's why in the following verses, Paul starts to talk about the body of Christ. He uses the metaphor of a human body to, to, to illustrate this harmony and unity that occurs. And it's also, I believe, the reason why in verse 7, he refers to the gifts as manifestations. Look at verse 7. Manifestations. The manifestation of the Spirit. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To manifest is to to show, it's to reveal, it's to show up. God shows up. In other words, God who is invisible makes himself visible. He manifests himself in a certain way. And, and, And he does this in the church through the gifts that he gives. The Holy Spirit, as it were, wants to be and I, I say this with caution, but he, he wants to be seen. Not because he's drawing attention to himself. That is, that, that is not the desire of the Spirit. But he wants to be seen so that we understand who God is, who Christ is. And so these are the various ways in which God is seen. And in verse 8 through 10, we have some of the ways in which he's seen. Sometimes through a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge to another by faith, the faith of an individual. He shows up in faith, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, and so on. And then he he goes on in verses 28 through 30, and he talks about other ways in which he, he shows up. He manifests himself. I just want to take a couple of these today and, and just try to illustrate these for you. Um, and I, I, I can't go through the whole list today. Uh, if we did, we'd have to go through 19 or 20 different gifts. But I just want to pick up on a few of these. Verse 8. To one there is given through the Spirit the message or the word of wisdom. Do you remember just a couple of months ago we had a very special church meeting, a special church family meeting. It was right here in the auditorium. We tried to have it in the fellowship hall downstairs. And so many people showed up, we had to have it here. And uh, some information was shared with the church about, about the changes that are going on in terms of our staffing and so on, and what does that mean for us for the, for the future. And then more information was giving, given about the need to establish a pastoral search committee and so on. That was an incredible meeting. If you missed it, you missed one, I think, of the most historic meetings in our church because in that meeting, a number of concerns were expressed by you, the people. And once those concerns were expressed, there were others who stood up in the meeting and spoke to those concerns. Uh, I I remember Brother Ian Arnott standing up and and saying a word. I remember Rachel Kenya standing up and giving a word. And friends, when they spoke, as soon as they spoke, there was wisdom in what they said. And it just seemed to calm us all. And we realized that the concerns that we had were... Were, were unfounded. Wisdom was given. Faith was shown in the words that were spoken. To one is given a measure of faith. And we were built up in our faith. 
I don't necessarily want to park on this particular gift for long, but, but because there's so many here, but, but at some of the most major crucial turning points in my life when I have struggled with the will of God. I think of my father-in-law who came to me and spoke to me, sat down with me, and all I can say is that what he said to me was a word of wisdom from God the Holy Spirit that helped me to discern the leading of God in my life. To one is given a word of wisdom. To another is given faith. I don't know if many of you remember back uh, six, seven years ago now when we were right in the midst of a building uh, project here. It's hard to believe it was that many years ago now. There were some big challenges that we were facing as a church then. Financial, others, there was all kinds, there were problems galore. And I remember Cal Vortman during that that time. Every time we started to talk about another problem that had come up, Cal would say, God's got this. God's in this. Trust God. Cal has the gift of faith. And and by, by him speaking his faith, it was as though we were all strengthened in faith. Brother Alan, you have that gift too. You talk about what God's doing all around the world and God has used you in incredible ways. That's the gift of faith. We all have faith, but some seem to have a measure of it more than others. And we thank God for them because when we're doubting and we're struggling and we're facing the issues in life, someone with the gift of faith comes alongside and says, God's got it. Boy, what an encouragement that is to our hearts. One of the gifts is a simple gift. It's simply called helps. <laughs> helps. The ability to help others. That, that gift can be manifest in so many different ways. You guys who work up here in the sound crew and the tech stuff and all that, that happens on a Sunday morning, you, you exercise a ministry of helps here. We have Stephen ministers in our church who, who come alongside people who are very broken going through some deep issues in their lives and they're there coming alongside to help them. One of the gifts is administration. It it essentially means knowing how to steer a ship. A church like ours is a big ship that needs to be steered. And Thank God there are people who have administrative gifts to make sure that everything is done decently and in order. This is one of the gifts of the Spirit. Hallelujah. And even in the preaching of the word, this often happens. I'm teaching you the word, and, 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 and it's not just general information that you're getting from God or from the word that is helping you, but sometimes someone will come up to me after a morning service and say, John, what you said, and, and they'll tell me what I said, that was for me. You don't know what I went through this week. What you said to me was for me, and I go back and I check in my notes, and I say, it wasn't even in my notes. But God spoke. The wonderful gifts of the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, all these are the work of the one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each man, to each believer. Not just to the pastor. To each one of us, just as he determines. Let me tell you one more thing about, a couple more things about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11 now. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. Now, you would think the word would say, so it is with the church. It doesn't. It says, so it is with Christ. 
So it is with Christ. We are the body of Christ. Do you realize that as the body of Christ that has many parts, that you and I as the church are reproducing Jesus' ministry? The gifts of the Spirit are given so that the ministry of Jesus when he was here on earth will continue in the present through his people. What does God want to give, to distribute, to apportion to the church? We are his body. God wants to reproduce the ministry of Jesus among us in our midst and in the community at large. Remember, the book of Acts begins with Luke telling us that in his former book, the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about everything Jesus began to do and to teach implying that in the book of Acts, this is Jesus continuing to do and to to teach. The ministry of Jesus goes on. It goes on, and what did Jesus do when he was here on earth? And I'm not talking now about his death on the cross, as important as that was, or his resurrection, as important as that was, but what did Jesus do when he was here on the earth? The Apostle Peter tells us in Acts that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So friends, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, get a journal, get some blank paper, and start writing all the various things that Jesus did. Just write them all out. And as you analyze them, you know what you will see? you will see that everything that Jesus did was a gift from the Holy Spirit, that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, except for two, all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, except for two, were operational in the life of Jesus. Now, you all want to know what those two were, right? The gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues is found nowhere in the ministry of Jesus but every other gift of the Spirit is found in the ministry of Jesus. Was Jesus an apostle? Of course he was. Hebrews tells us that he is the great apostle of our faith. He was the one sent from the Father. Jesus was a prophet, God's last and greatest prophet. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son or through his Son. Was Jesus an evangelist? Read the opening chapters of John where he goes to Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel and Bartholomew and brings them to himself. Read John 3 where he sits down with Nicodemus and wins him to himself. Read John 4 where he sits down by a woman at the well and tells her that he is the Messiah. Jesus was the greatest evangelist who ever lived. Was Jesus a pastor? He said, I am the good shepherd, the good pastor who gives his life for the sheep? Was Jesus a teacher? Did he have the gift of teaching? No man taught like Jesus taught. Did he have the gift of healing, the gift of miracles? Of course he did. Was Jesus able to distinguish between spirits, a specific gift that Paul mentions here? Well, yes, he was. He not only dealt with demons, 
But after he came down off the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples, the the nine of them who weren't with Jesus on the mountain, the nine of them who were trying to cast out a demon out of a young boy and help his father, and they weren't able to, to do it, after Jesus expelled the demon, Jesus said this, this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. In other words, he understood what kind of demon it was he was able to distinguish between spirits. And friend, I could go on. Did Jesus help people? Did he have the gift of helps? Did Jesus have the gift of leadership? Did Jesus have the gift of administration? Of course he did. He had all of these gifts. He organized his disciples in two, and he sent them out. He had the gift of encouragement. He had the gift of mercy. And how often we see Jesus using that wonderful gift of mercy in the lives of people. Our Lord Jesus had all the gifts of the Spirit, except for two. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Because people can't see Jesus today. Because Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. But what people can see today is the body of Christ here on this earth. We are the body of Christ. And God, the Holy Spirit, is distributing the ministry of Jesus Christ to his church in order that it will carry on through his church. And you as one particular member of the church, you have one portion, one little aspect of the ministry of Jesus. You can't manufacture and reproduce the whole of the ministry of Jesus, and neither can I. But together as the body of Christ, we can reproduce the total ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, all these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each man just as he determines. The next thing I would say about the gifts of the Spirit is that the gifts of the Spirit are given to build up the church. Just as this is an overarching commitment of the Holy Spirit to build up the church, so it is an overarching, um, uh, it's, it's a wonderful gift that is given through the gifts. The church is built up, the church is edified, and we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Now I want to go to verses 12 and 13. I want to move away from the gifts of the Spirit for a moment, and I want to talk to you now about what Paul calls here being baptized by one Spirit into one body. Look at verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. In other words, it doesn't matter what our race is. It doesn't matter what our social status is, what our economic status is. It doesn't matter what our background is. If we are believers, we have been baptized by one spirit into one body. There's the body metaphor again. Notice the last line. And we were all given this one spirit to drink. Now, there are three verbs here in these verses, in, this, in verse 13. The first verb is baptized. What tense is that? Past tense. Second verb, and we were all given. Given. What tense is that? Past tense. The one spirit to drink. What tense is that? That's present tense. 
present tense. Two past tense, one present tense. Here's what I want to say concerning this baptism of the Spirit into the body of Christ. First of all, the Spirit has placed you, placed me, into the body of Christ. We're his body. That is the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, immersing us into the, bo- the, bo- the body. Past tense, that happened. When did it happen? When you believed. When you and I believed, placed into the body of Jesus Christ. In so doing, he gave us, given, past tense, the Spirit. Past tense. But notice, there's a present tense there. Given the one Spirit to drink. The idea is continually drinking. Continually drinking. So there's this initial act of the Spirit placing us into the body. But out of that that baptism comes then the potential of this great empowering as we drink constantly from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers you to serve. It's interesting. When Jesus spoke of the Spirit, he usually used the illustration of water. He who believes in me, he said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. We are given the Spirit to drink. So you have been placed into the body of Christ, and now the Holy Spirit who lives in you is one from whom you can drink constantly. In other words, you can be full of the Holy Spirit and have the Spirit's empowering in your life. That brings us to the next thing, and that is the body of Christ. It's already alluded to in terms of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now beginning at verse 14, he unpacks this a little bit more, the body of Christ. Here Paul uses the human body to illustrate truths about life in the body of of Christ. And Paul is going to address in these verses two attitudes that are very, very common in the church. And they're not good. But he addresses them here. And the first thing he addresses is the attitude of insignificance. Look at what he says. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many, verse 14. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. (laughs) It would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. What's he saying? No one in the body of Christ is insignificant. We all have worth and value. Value, we're all a part of the body. The foot can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. So the foot looks at the hand and says, Wow, all I have is toes. You have fingers. You have so much dexterity in the hand. You can do things with your fingers that I can't do with my hands. I don't belong to the body. I'm insignificant. How ridiculous that is. And the ear, the ear can't say, say to the eye, I'm not an eye like you. I I guess I don't belong to the body. I mean, I look at you and you got like sparkle in your eye and you got little eyelashes and and you look so nice and I'm just this piece of ugly cartilage on the side of the head. And yet we do this all the time. I mean, some of you you think, well, I can't preach. I don't... 
I can't teach God's word. I, I could never lead in worship. I, I'm insignificant. Nothing I do could ever contribute to the body. Listen, listen, friends, look at what he says in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. In other words, there are no insignificant members in the body of Christ. Now, there's many reasons why people often feel like they are insignificant. But one of the reasons is is that we have a wrong idea of what the church is and what the work of the church is. The church isn't a religious organization. We're not a community club. We're not not a, a religious group. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the work of the church is to reproduce the ministry of Jesus. So how varied was the ministry of Jesus? Well, there was preaching and there was teaching, but there was also helping and mercy giving. There were administrative aspects to the ministry of Jesus. There was encouragement in the ministry of Jesus. There were all kinds of things that Jesus did behind the scenes. Not all of his ministry was done in front of the masses. If you read the Gospels through, Jesus spent time alone with the 12 and sometimes with the three, and sometimes with the 70. And they were all disciples of the Lord. And other times he came alongside people individually and spoke to them and ministered to them in difficult ways. In other words, there was more about the behind-the-scenes ministry of Jesus that we read about in the Gospels than about that which is done in front of a large crowd. And so what is said here in verse 18 is so important. In fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. No one is insignificant. Also, then, another attitude is addressed here. Look at verse 21. He addresses here the attitude of independence, that kind of maverick spirit that often characterizes so many of us. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. No one is independent. Some of you know the name Ray Stedman. He's a pastor in the United States, a very prolific author, and uh, he mentions in one of his writings, that he was preaching from this passage, 
1 Corinthians 12, but he, he wasn't preaching it in his home church. He was a guest speaker at an, another church. And when he'd finished preaching about the body and its many parts, a man approached him, and uh, the man was a physician. And uh, he, said, he said to Stedman, he said, Pastor, y- you may not know this, but there's one part of your body that is absolutely indispensable to your preaching, and you don't even know which part it is. And Stedman looked at him, he said, well, what do you mean? Are you talking about my brain, because I have to use my brain to think? You're talking about my lips and my tongue, because I have to, to talk? You're talking about my vocal cords, because they're pretty important in terms of how I project my voice and so on. And the doctor said, no. He says, what is indispensable to your preaching is your big toe. Your big toe. And Stedman said, what do you mean? And he said, well, do you realize that if it wasn't for your big toe, when you're standing in front of people preaching, that that you would lose your balance and fall? That it is your big toe that senses when you shift weight or when you get a little off balance. It's your big toe that keeps you back on balance again, that keeps you standing up. I thought about that for a moment. I thought, wow, my big toe is an essential part of my teaching ministry as a pastor. So if you are blessed by my preaching and teaching over the years that I've been here, then you need to thank God that I have a big toe. (laughs) My big toe. I think you get the point. The point is is that there are hidden and secret functions within a body, but they are all needed and they are all important. So the next thing I would say under this point of we are the body of Christ, not only is no one insignificant and no one independent, but that God has a place for you. Verse 27, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed. And then he lists what the appointments are. God has a place for you. You know, there are three basic human needs that all of us have. And by human needs, I'm not referring just to physical needs, but three emotional, mental needs that all of us have that contribute to our well-being as human beings. The first is we have a need for security. Secondly, we have a need for identity. And third, we all have a need to have a proper sense of responsibility. Do you realize that all of this is met in the body of Christ by the gifts of the Spirit that God has given to us? My need and your need for security is met in the assurance, I belong to the body. I am a part of the body. My need and your need for identity is met in recognizing the fact that I have, that you have, a distinct contribution to make to the body. My proper sense of responsibility and yours is met by assuming concern for others who are in the body. I need you, you need me. I feel with you, you feel with me. I rejoice with you, you rejoice with me. I cry with you, you cry with me. Look at verse 18. But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body. Verse 24, but God has combined the members of the body. Verse 27, in the church God has appointed. God has arranged, God has combined, God has 
appointed. He's appointed us. He's placed us. Jesus Christ's ministry is given to you. And he did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Look at verse 31. Paul brings his words to a conclusion here before he moves in to the next passage. He says, but eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I will show you the most excellent way. He tells us to desire the greater gifts. So we've all been given gifts, and we're to desire the greater gifts. Now some people think, oh, well that means Paul wants us to go for the gifts that are really showy, that are right out there, the sensational stuff. Is that what he says? But desire the greater gifts. How did Jesus measure greatness in the kingdom of God? He says, the one who will be greatest among you must be what? The servant of all. Do you know what the greatest gifts of the Spirit are? They are the gifts by which we get to serve others and to help others to grow in their faith. So let's keep this in mind. Jesus' criteria for greatness is service. And we should desire those gifts by which we can serve others better. Okay, there's the exposition of this, of this passage. And there's lots for you to chew on, and I think our community groups should have a lot to talk about this week. But I want to leave you right now with six words um, as a way of application of what this passage is all about. Six words. Number one. There is a word in 1 Corinthians 12 from God about church membership. I mean, this is all about the body of Christ. This is all about being a member of the body and taking your part in the body, contributing as God wants you to and gifts you to. It is impossible for you to be a Christian and not be connected to a local church. Oh, I know there are Christians who, they go here, they go there, they go everywhere, as it were. And there's nothing wrong with going to another church from time to time and visiting a church and so on. My wife and I do that every year, and we look forward to it very much. Because we like to see what God is doing in other places. But we've made a commitment to this local church. And every Christian needs to be rooted in a local church. Every Christian needs to have a spiritual home. And, and, and if, if you're going to use the gifts that God has given you, if you're going to be a good steward of those gifts, then you've got to be rooted and linked into a local church. And don't, don't misunderstand me now. I'm not making a plea for you to become a member of West Highland, but I am making a plea for you to become a member of a local church. And if West Highland is the place, then that's super. But if God leads you to other places, then that's great too. But you need to be a member of a good Bible-believing local church because you can't live out the application of the gifts of the Spirit if you're floating here and floating there. Secondly, there's a word in this passage about community. Community. The gifts can only be exercised, practiced, 
ministered within the context of a communal setting. It's with people getting to know each other. It's with people understanding each other. It's with people ministering to each other. And so there's a word about community here. And certainly in a large setting like this on a Sunday morning, many of the gifts of the Spirit will be in operation, teaching and preaching being one of them right right now. And and that's, that's a part of our communal life. But there are other things that need to happen in smaller settings. And that's why at West Highland it is so important for us that we not only have the celebration on a Sunday morning, but we have our community groups during the week where in those smaller settings we can minister to each, to each other. Faith can be exercised. Words of wisdom can be spoken. Prayer can be given. All of these things can happen in a smaller setting. And so I encourage you to think about that and to be a part of a group. And we want these groups not to be a little not to develop into little cliques where we don't want anyone else in, but rather to be true fellowship groups where there's a dynamism that happens in our relationships and we get to minister the gifts of the Spirit to each other. Thirdly, there is a word here in this passage about spirituality, and I'm going to say something now that may offend some people here today. Be that as it may, it has to be said. There are particular Christians, particular groups, particular churches, particular denominations that make one particular gift the sign of a deeper spirituality. And that is a serious, serious error. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Do all have the gifts of healing? No. Do all have the gift of tongues? No. Do all have the interpretation of tongues? No. Friends, in the church today, certain groups have erected a wall of division by saying that this particular group is the sign of a deeper spirituality. And as I read 1 Corinthians 12, I have to conclude nothing is further from the truth. And I think that kind of teaching needs to be renounced. And in renouncing it, it will in some way play a substantial part in bringing down an unnecessary wall that exists between true believers in Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, verse 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The sign of spirituality is the life that is surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord. And when we surrender to Jesus as our Lord, then we are willing for the sovereign Lord to bestow upon us whatever gifts he desires. His will, not ours be done. Amen. Number four, there is a word here about leadership, about leadership. So let me speak to the pastors and the elders, the ministry team members, our deacons, and other people who are involved as leaders of ministry within our church. A major part of the gift of leadership, a gift that is given to individuals like pastors and so on, a major part of that gift is to recognize and train those who we work with so that they will discover and they will deploy and develop their gifts 
in the service of Christ in the context of the local church. Ephesians 4 tells us that the ascended Christ gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to the church not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the body of Christ to whom has been given the many various gifts of the Spirit to do the work of ministry. Number five, I believe there is a word here about continuity. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you will understand that a great debate has raged in the church for hundreds of years about whether or not all of the gifts that are mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 12 are operational in the church today. There are some who say that these gifts have ceased, that shortly after the apostles died off, that these gifts ceased because they were no longer necessary or needed in the church. Whereas other gifts have remained with the church and will be with the church until Jesus comes. This is a very heated debate. It's a complicated debate. I am prepared to say this to you today. I believe that there are certain gifts that have ceased. And by that I mean the gift of an apostle has ceased. There, God isn't giving any more apostles to the church today. And in saying that, I believe apostles have ceased. I believe I stand with the broader part of the Christian church, and even with many Pentecostal denom den denominations that believe all the gifts are operational today. Because very few Pentecostals actually believe that there are living apostles today. The gift of an apostle was an a one-time one gift for the foundation of the church. And Jesus Christ built his church upon the foundation of the apostles. And for a church to be apostolic, it does not need a living apostle today. What it needs to be is faithful to the teaching that the apostles have given. And so in one sense, the apostles are alive among us today because we have their writings. And to be apostolic, we must be true to what the apostles have said. So I acknowledge the fact that there has been some shift in the history of the church in terms of the gifts of the Spirit. But I would say this also. For us to determine all of these gifts, what are operational and what are not today, would be, I think, in some ways, to put ourselves in the place of God. This is up to God as to which gifts he wants to see operational in his church today. Again, look at verse 18. In fact, God has arranged. Verse 24, God has combined the members of the body. Verse 28, God has appointed. This is the sovereign act of God. And when certain gifts are needed in the church, when there are unique situational moments where a particular gift of the Spirit is needed to help the church, then God in his sovereignty can give that gift to the church. So I would say the gifts have not ceased, but our times and our situations do change. And depending on all of these, is how the sovereign Lord works among us. We should be open to receive all the good gifts that God has for his church. And finally, a word about thirst. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please, if you would. 
ask our worship team to join me here on the platform. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, a prayer, but I want to talk to you as a final point while we stand about our thirst. I take you to verse 13 again. We were all given the one spirit to drink. I believe there is more of the power of the Holy Spirit available to us today than what we thirst for. And the reason why in the church we do not experience the wonderful working power of the Spirit of God in so many different ways, often displayed in various gifts of the Spirit, is because we do not thirst as we should for the Spirit's working among us. We were all given the one Spirit to drink. I don't know about you, but I am thirsty, friends. I am thirsty that in our midst, words of wisdom will be spoken to each other to help us to walk in the ways of righteousness. I am thirsty that those of us who have the gift of faith will exercise that gift in great ways that we might see mountains move for the glory of God and problems overcome in people's lives because people with the gift of faith are laying hold of God in prayer and seeing those mountains moved. I am thirsty for to see a church that is led well and administered well by spirit-filled leaders because that always strengthens the church. I am thirsty to see an explosion of the gift of helps in our midst where we're constantly helping each other so that no one has need. I am thirsty that, that good teaching will continue and that good teaching will, will, will spread and that, that, that churches will, will, be, will be overwhelmed with good teaching because good teaching is the gift of the Spirit that causes a church to grow into maturity in Christ. I am thirsty that people with the gift of evangelism will be fully involved in sharing their faith so that many will be saved. I'm thirsty to see people come to faith in Christ. I'm thirsty to see people use their gifts, to see new disciples developed and encouraged and strengthened to grow in the Lord. I want to see the Spirit manifest himself. Do you, do you, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have ascended on high and given gifts to your people. Thank you, Spirit of God, for the wonderful ways in which you manifest yourself in the presence of your people. Thank you for the wonderful unity that you create, a unity that is like that unity that you enjoy with the Father and with the Son. Lord, I pray today that you will cause our hearts to thirst for more. And cause our hearts to thirst for us giving more of ourselves to you and bowing our knee to you continually, Lord Jesus, as the Lord of the church and the Lord of our hearts. There might be some people here today and you feel like you are insignificant. Would you bring that to God right now, please? And just remind yourself in God's presence, thank him, Lord, thank you, that you've given me gifts too and I am significant to you. Some of us need to repent of independence 
We think we've got our act together and, and we don't realize, you don't realize how much you need the body of Christ. All of us today should be surrendering again to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, living out the great confession that we make that he is Lord. Some of you today may, it may be your desire, you're saying, I, I want to use my gifts. I, I'm not sure what they are. I need to discover that. I need to use them for the glory of Christ. Would you make that commitment to the Lord today? Some of you need to commit to the church. And some of you need to commit to serve. And just as the Holy Spirit gives differing gifts, so the Holy Spirit can work right now in differing ways in each of our hearts. And maybe there are things that I haven't even mentioned to you right now, but God's speaking to you about those things. And so as we pray now, as we sing this prayer, would all of us make this a prayer of devotion and commitment to the Lord today?